Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really my privilege and uh, joy to share with you God's Word. If you have your Bibles, or if you could just look up on the screen, our passage for today comes to us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 19 all the way down to verse 31. Here now, the reading of God's Word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He, Abraham, said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us yet again. Lord, as you are so faithful in summoning your people to gather together on this Lord's day to be fed and to be nourished and to be strengthened in our faith, in our resolve, oh God, would you fulfill that promise now? Oh, Lord, we have lived these past six days in the world. We have been confronted with things about ourselves, with things about others, things about this world that unsettle us, and we need you yet again to comfort and to assure us that you have conquered all things that work against us and that seek to rob you of your glory. And so, Lord, would you establish our hope in you yet again, promising us of your unending love so that we may be empowered, we may be energized, We may be equipped to go back out into this dark and broken world and to shine forth as stars in the skies, exhibiting the love of God that only comes to us through the finished work of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Master. For we pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds, every minute, there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects, and where is God? These words come from renowned atheist and former pastor, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is James A. Gray, professor of religious studies at my alma mater, 
UNC Chapel Hill, and I imagine that his words really resonate with countless, maybe millions of people who really struggle to believe in God, specifically the God of the Bible. And who knows, perhaps for some of you in here, those of you who would even dare claim that you are followers of Jesus, you find yourself strangely resonating with these words as well to where you, like Dr. Ehrman, would ask the question that he asked at the end of that quote, where is God? Where is God in light of all the atrocious uh, terror and, and, and violence and unspoken horrors that go on in the world today where there is just nothing but senseless suffering? But with that said, I would ask for you to pay a little bit closer attention to this quote as I ask you this question. What is Dr. Ehrman subtly implying by saying what he does? What is the underlying message? What is the unspoken but obvious subtext he is implying in this kind of indirect rebuke of God? Isn't he indirectly implying that God, if there is one, is not a compassionate God? And furthermore, when you further consider the tone of his words as he writes them, isn't he further implying that he is more capable of being compassionate than God. That, in other words, Dr. Bart Ehrman is saying that he is capable of having more compassion than the God of the Bible. Initially, it seems like such a bold statement to make, and yet, if we're honest, all of us in here at some point in our life, in our Christian life, if I may add, have also wondered the same thing. Am I more compassionate than the God of the Bible? Especially when you consider the biblical doctrine of hell. And for those of you who grew up going to the church, no doubt by now you have been exposed to the teaching in the Bible that says that those who don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will end up in a place called hell, sometimes known as Gehenna, sometimes referred to as Hades, like in our passage today. And that teaching, if we're honest, becomes more and more uncomfortable when we get more and more intimate with people in our lives, whether in school or at work, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, and yet, in our sense of interaction, they seem good like, they seem to be good, decent people. Now, not perfect, not sinless saints, but nevertheless, people who don't seem to deserve to suffer for all eternity in hell. And so the more we develop these relationships, the more uncomfortable we get with teachings like this in the Bible, because it arouses that unsettling question in the back of our minds. Am I more compassionate than God? I don't want this person to go to hell, but if this person ends up going to hell, does that mean I'm more compassionate than God? Which really means, is God not as compassionate as I always thought that he was? If there is such a thing as the most scariest question to ask, I would imagine that as followers of Jesus, this would be it. And yet, wouldn't you know, this is the very question that Jesus confronts head on as he teaches this interesting story, this interesting parable about two men one who ends up in hell, one who ends up in heaven. And as we take a look at this parable, Jesus is going to address that question in a way that hopefully might settle you down and restore your sense of hope in the compassion of our great God. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, the apparent compassion of the rich man. Second, why the rich man is not as compassionate at all. And finally, the God of compassion, the apparent compassion of the rich man, why the rich man is not compassionate at all, and finally, the God of compassion. Let's begin. First, the apparent compassion of the rich man. Let me take a drink of my 
water. This is not coffee, by the way. Even though it says Panera, it's water. See, it's water. But it's okay if you have coffee. It's okay. First, the apparent compassion of the rich man. Now, for those of you, again, who grew up going to church, no doubt by now you are taught the biblical doctrine of hell. And that also means one of the things that gets attached to that teaching is this notion of the personality types, the profiles of the kinds of people who end up in hell. Usually, if you grew up in the church like I did, you were taught that only evil, sinister people end up in hell, the most atrocious, wicked people off the face of the earth, right? We're talking about people like, like Kim Jong-il, Hitler, Pol Pot, you know, rapists, serial murderers. We're talking about people who are just so evil, they are so sinisterly self-absorbed, so arrogantly self-centered, that people who are in hell are simply incapable of thinking of any Anyone else caring about anyone else but themselves, right? That's the typical profile that we're given as we're taught this idea about those who end up in hell. But then you come to our passage for today, this parable that Jesus himself makes up about two men, one who ends up in heaven, Lazarus, and a rich man who ends up in hell. So here's the question. How does Jesus portray the rich man who ends up in hell? Read again with me. Let's skip on down to verses 27. To 28. Can we have our passage up there, please? Let's go down to verse 27 and read that with verse 28. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Uh-oh. This doesn't look right. This doesn't look good because here you have a guy who is in hell, who is suffering the torments of hell, and who is he thinking about? Is he thinking about himself? Is he concerned about himself? Is he worried about himself? No. Who is he thinking about? Who is he concerned for? He's thinking about his brothers, right? He's worried for them. Think about that for a moment. When you are in tremendous pain, If you stub your toe, are you thinking about your best friend? Are you thinking about your wife? Are you thinking about your children even? No, you're like, I'm in pain. The focus is on you, right? And yet here is a man who is suffering the worst torment that any human being could ever suffer. And he's not thinking about himself at all. He's thinking about his brothers. And what does he do? He cries out to Father Abraham, and the way that he's set up in this story, Jesus has him as a representative of God to where he basically represents what God thinks and what God desires. He's a spokesman for God, so what he says to Abraham, he's really saying to God, and what Abraham says to this man, God is saying through him. And so here is this rich man saying, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus back to my brothers, have him rise again from the dead supernaturally, so that act will convince my brothers to repent and therefore avoid suffering the torments of hell that I'm suffering right now. I don't know about you, but this man who was in hell doesn't fit the profile that we were taught in Sunday school. He is not just thinking about himself. He is concerned for others to the point where maybe he's acting in a way that's somewhat redeemable because who is he acting like? He's acting like Jesus. He's concerned for those who are destined to hell to where he doesn't want them to go to hell, right? Now let's stop for just a moment in our interaction with the text. And let's focus on the thoughts that are probably swirling through your head right now. Those thoughts are probably unsettling, right? Maybe even downright disturbing because here you have what seems to be a situation of a human being having more compassion to God because once he asked Father Abraham this request, what does Abraham say to this man? No, right? No, I'm not going to do it. God's not going to do it. 
Now that's unsettling. That fact is downright disturbing because, again, it seems that God may not be as compassionate as a person suffering the torments of hell. And if it is true that it's possible for a human being to have more compassion than God, what does that say about God's compassion? What does it say about God's goodness? What does it say about God's mercy? What does it say about God's love, especially in light of all the brokenness and atrociousness that we see happening in the world where we hope God would intervene? What does that say about God? How does that make you feel about God? I'll tell you how it makes you feel. It makes you feel that this God who you thought you knew, you probably don't know him at all. And all of a sudden, this sense of closeness that you felt you once had with God, all of a sudden feels distanced to the point where he seems like a stranger to you, right? Let me ask you, have you ever suffered that trauma in your life before? Have you ever had someone in your life who you thought you knew so well, and what you knew about them just made you feel so good, not just good about the person, but just good in general because a person like this existed in the world, right? Man, that person just makes me feel good about the world because they're just so good. I know this person. They're just... And yet, they come to a sense of shocking discovery, almost a sense of betrayal, that what they thought they knew about a person isn't what they are at all. Maybe it was a schoolmate. Maybe it was someone in your church. Maybe it was someone in your workplace. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was even your own spouse. Because all the things that you loved about this person turned out not to be true. Can you imagine how traumatic you feel? Have you ever experienced that? I have. How much more traumatic must it be when this God, who you think is so loving and so compassionate, all of a sudden, in your mind, turns out to possibly not be true? Maybe he's not as compassionate as I thought he was. What does that do to you? How does that change your thinking? You know how it changes your thinking? It changes your thinking in such a way to where when you think about hell, you no longer think of it as a just place for the condemned to go to. And it makes you think those who are in hell less like victimizers and more like victims, right? But consider these very wise words from Pastor Tim Keller with regards to the issue of hell and the people in it. This is from his book, The Reason for God. He writes this, modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. God gives us time. But if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy. But God says, too late, you had your chance. Now you will suffer. This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. According to Dr. Keller, this idea that hell is a cruel place and the people in it are simply victims, they're not victimizers, to where it would cause you to come to the Uh, implicit conclusion that our God is not a compassionate God at all, Keller would say that's a complete misunderstanding to the nature of evil. Here's the question. Why would he say such a thing? Well, to answer, let me go to my next point. Why the rich man is not compassionate at all. Let's take a closer look at this rich man and see once and for all if indeed he is a victim. Let's look at what it says in verse 19 where we read as follows. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Pause right there and your attention, please. Here, in this verse, Jesus introduces us for the very first time this rich man prior to his final eternal destination of hell. And how does Jesus describe him in verse 19? Well, we just read it. He dresses in purple and fine linen. And some of you are like... 
okay? The guy likes to dress like Prince. So what? <laughs> Why is that a big deal, right? Well, consider what Pastor Joseph, excuse me, not Joseph, Joshua Butler says in his book, Skeleton in God's Closet. That's a fantastic book, by the way. I based my sermon heavily on that book and Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. Pick up a copy of that book. That's a great book. But listen to what Pastor Butler says. He says this, two observations. First, the rich man got it good. Purple and linen were the finest, most expensive clothes back in the day. A mark of affluence. Today we might say he wore Armani, lived in Bel Air, and drove a Hummer. He's a luxury man. He's also quite possibly a political and religious leader. Purple was a sign of royalty in ancient times, and priests wore linen. Jesus directs his parable at the political and religious, religious leaders of his day. Interesting. Turns out that this wealthy man was not just filthy rich. He was also a man of prominence in his community. He was a person of power. He was a person of affluence. He was a person that made things happen for other people. But what's even more distinguishing about this guy is that he was a spiritual leader because, as it says, he wore linen, which were the garments of the spiritual leaders of the day. Priests. Okay, he was a spiritual leader. And this is further confirmed about what it says in verse 20. Read it again with me. And at his gate was laid... A poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. You see how it says that Lazarus was laid at this rich man's gate, right? Like he was intentionally put there. He was put there on purpose. Here's the question. Out of all the places that they could put poor Lazarus, why would they put him at the gate of this specific rich man? I'll tell you why. Because in accordance to the Old Testament, Israelites were expected to care for those less fortunate than them, especially spiritual leaders like priests, right? Consider these texts from the Old Testament, all from Proverbs. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 19. If you help the poor, you are, leading to the, you are lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. Proverbs 21. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Proverbs 28. Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. You see, this man had a reputation This rich man had the reputation of someone who took the Old Testament seriously. Someone who was devoted to the teachings of Scripture, right? Which means it would make sense. Hey, where should we do with Lazarus? I know. Let's take him to the one who is devoted to the Lord, who takes the Old Testament seriously. Who would care for the poor because that's what the Old Testament teaches. People assume that the one place where poor Lazarus would get the kind of care and concern and compassion that he would need... It would be this rich man's gate, right? And so that's why they put him there. Now, some of you are hearing this like, oh, it further confirms, does it not, Pastor John, that this man truly was a compassionate person, maybe more compassionate than God. Maybe this further convinces me that this man was more compassionate than God because not only while he's in hell is he concerned about his brothers, but even while he's alive, he has a reputation among the community members that he's a compassionate person. But don't go there. Because you have to read the other things that it says about this man. Read again verse 20 one more time, but this time let's include verse 21 to 22. And at this gate, at his gate, the rich man, was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. Let me ask. Has this wretch man shown any compassion to Lazarus? No. 
Because it says in verse 21 that Lazarus desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible might say, wait a minute, that phrase fell from the table. Why does that sound so familiar to me? Pastor John, why does that phrase fell from the table sound so familiar? I'll tell you why. It's because you're thinking about Matthew 15. Listen to what it says there. Starting in verse 24, we read, Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, pleading, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, True, Lord, yes, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great, your request is granted, and her daughter was instantly healed. Here we see that same phrase, what fell from the table. It was a cultural phrase to describe how dogs were treated. Back in the ancient world, dogs were permitted to eat the scraps that fell from the table of some wealthy, prominent person. So with that in mind, we ask ourselves, why would Lazarus want to eat from this man's table? Because what he's essentially saying is he wants to be treated like a dog. Why in the world would Lazarus yearn to be treated like a dog by this rich man? The only possible answer is because this rich man treated him worse than a dog. He didn't treat this man like a fellow human being. He didn't even treat him like a dog. He treated him worse than a dog. And this is verified by the fact that even the dogs came up and had pity on him. Because even dogs and their canine intelligence could see, man, this guy has it bad. He has it worse than us. Let's lick his sores, at least show some compassion to him. Because no one is doing him any favors. This rich man was not a good person. He was not a kind person. He certainly wasn't compassionate. Some of you might think, okay, pastor, you convinced me. This guy was not a good person. He was not kind. But come on. Even with that said, he maybe lived, what, 70 years of unkindness? Does that still justify in all eternity of hell and fire and brimstone and suffering? I mean, wouldn't it 70 years of misconduct be equivalent to 70 years of hell? You know, why all eternity? Why suffer? Especially when it looks like that this guy changed his ways, right? Because in verse, uh, what, when he's in hell, what he says, I'm concerned about my brothers. Yeah, maybe he changed. Maybe he reformed. Why is it necessary for him to keep suffering if he changed? I mean, he's after all concerned about his brothers, Surely God is still not justified in punishing for all eternity for that, right? Because he changed. Ah, but that's the question. Did he really change? Like, well, yeah, look at the way how, how concerned he is about his brothers. Well, that doesn't say anything. The text says nothing about what his relationship was like with his brothers while he was living, right? I'm sure Hitler loved his brothers at the time. Kim Jong, uh, not so much, right? But even tyrants, even cold-blooded serial killers are capable of being family men. No, we have no idea if this guy changed except for seeing the relationship that is portrayed before and after his death, which is who? His relationship with Lazarus. So we have to ask ourselves, did his view of Lazarus change? Did his attitude towards Lazarus change? That's how you know if this rich man really changed. And so we ask ourselves, did this rich man change? Did his attitude, his posture towards Lazarus change at all? Read again, verse 24. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus 
to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. In reflecting on this verse, consider these words from Pastor Joshua Butler. He writes this. Notice how the rich man doesn't ask to get into heaven. He asks the opposite. He wants to drag Lazarus down into hell with him. He asks Abraham, send Lazarus to serve him. The rich man still wants Lazarus to be beneath him, to order him around. Hey, Lazarus, get down here. Fetch me some water and cool my tongue. The rich man is in denial. He still lives in the old order of things where he was king and Lazarus was lower on the social ladder. He refuses the great reversal that God has accomplished. This is not a penitent sinner saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I want to live with you. Jesus' parable reveals his heart. He'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. This man didn't change. He had no compassion towards Lazarus while he was alive. And he certainly had no compassion towards him while he was suffering the torments of hell. And the underlying conclusion that Jesus wants us to take away from this parable is simply this. People are not as compassionate as you may think they are, which also includes you and me, by the way. You are not as compassionate as you may think you are, but conversely, the indirect implication could also be Jesus' point, that maybe, just maybe, God is more compassionate than you may think he is right now. But that is the question, isn't it? Is God really as compassionate as we think he is, or maybe is he not as compassionate as we thought he was? That's the quick, 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 key question that we're trying to answer today. And in an attempt to do so, let's go to our final point, the God of compassion. You know, Jesus told many parables throughout the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels, parable upon parable, especially in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And here's the thing, however. This parable which is one among many, is very interesting. It's very unique. It's very special because there's something about this parable that Jesus says that he does not do for any of the other parables. Okay? There's something very unique, unrepeated in this parable that is not repeated in the other parables. You know what that is? This is the only parable of Jesus where he actually names one of the characters in his story. If you read all the other parables... They're just generic titles, right? Jesus speaks of kings, of fathers, of servants, of brothers, right? But he never actually gives a personal name to any of his character except for this one. Why? Well, it's interesting. While he was alive, no one knew who Lazarus was. He was a nameless nobody. Now, how do I know that? Because of the comparison Jesus makes about Lazarus and the rich man in verse 22. Let's have it up there one more time. Look at what it says in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice Jesus adds the detail that the rich man was buried, right? But if you look at Lazarus, Jesus is completely silent of the fact that he was buried at all, which strongly implies that Lazarus was not given a proper burial at all. Now, why is that important? It's very important. You see, in the ancient world, having a proper burial was very, very important to them. It was very important to them. Here's what you may not know. Back in the ancient world, when a person died, they were buried not once, but twice. That's right. How can you be buried twice? I'll tell you. When a person died, they were first wrapped in linen, right, head to toe, covered with all these senses of spices and ointments and so forth, and they were put in a cave, right, to where they could rot for a year. Then after a year, all their flesh had decomposed, nothing is left but just their bones, 
And families would then come back, collect their bones, put it in a vessel called an ossuary. Ossuary? Ossuary, I think. Right? And they would take the ossuary and take the bones to the family tomb, place it right next to this man's mother and father, grandparents, right? The ossuary was put in the family tomb. Why? So friends and family could come and visit and pay their respects and remember the person that they desperately missed. People in the ancient world were properly buried because it expressed that they would be noticeably missed in light of their death. But the fact that this man, Lazarus, was not given a proper burial tells us what? No one was going to miss him. No one cared enough about his presence on earth to preserve his memory by putting him in an ossuary, by giving him a proper burial. That is what he is saying. No one knew who Lazarus was. He was the nameless nobody in that society. No one knew his name. But God knows his name. Jesus gives him a name. Why? Because our God is a God of compassion. That is what Jesus is saying. Our God is a God of compassion. There is no one in this life, right, to where God would see them as that weird nebulous somebody, like, oh, I don't know who you are. You look somewhat familiar. No. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone who's currently living, everyone who will ever live, God says, I know that person. I know that person's name. Even that nameless, nobody, little boy in some remote village far away who's never heard the gospel. You guys know who I'm talking about, right? It's that same nameless nobody in that remote village who's never heard the gospel that people always refer to when they ask me questions like, oh, Pastor John, what about that little boy who lives in that remote village who's never heard the gospel? Are they going to go to hell because they never heard about Jesus? To which I would always respond, well, who is this person? Tell me their name. Tell me what, I'll go right now and I'll tell them about Jesus. Like, oh, well, he's just, Someone I'm just making up. And after I laugh at this person for about two minutes, I say to them, look, I don't know if this person that you're talking about even exists. I don't know. Maybe he does. And maybe because he's a nameless nobody in society, you know, people are abusing him, taking advantage of him because no one's going to care. I don't know. And I certainly don't know if God's going to send this person to hell. But, you know, if this kid exists, if this woman exists, whoever exists, you know what I do know? That my God knows who that person is. He knows that person's name. He knows everybody personally, deeply, compassionately. He knows those people that everyone else has no idea even exists except just to reference them in some idiotic, hypothetical question about salvation. God knows everybody because our God is a compassionate God. That's the point he's trying to make when he says... His name is Lazarus. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're still unsettled. You're still unsatisfied, mainly because you keep thinking about this idea of hell and for all eternity, and especially when you hear the rich man's complaint of his anguish in verse 24. I'm in anguish in this flame, this imagery of flames and fire. And all of a sudden, you think of hell as some massive oven that God is pushing people in to just destroy them and consume them like Hitler did to millions of Jews in that atrocious genocide that caused World War II. And you think to yourself, ooh, that doesn't look good. That that, that doesn't look right. It almost makes God look like a a, a sick psycho, a 
cosmic Hitler. But before you let your head come to that conclusion, consider again these insightful words from Tim Keller. He says this, quote, A common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever, and as a result, the people in hell are miserable. We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. According to Tim Keller, he says that those who are in hell are self-absorbed victimizers who only choose to see themselves as the victim. And I think he is spot on because it explains this chasm Jesus refers to in verse 26 that's uncrossable, right? Remember, Father Abraham tells him there is a chasm between you and Lazarus. And there's no way anyone from your side can come here or our side can go over there, right? Why? Why is there this massive, uncrossable chasm? Think about it. Think about it from Lazarus' standpoint. What would eternal life be for him if he was always around this rich man for all eternity? To where this rich man could actually get to Lazarus with that kind of self-absorbed mindset. Lazarus would be miserable. Even more, he was miserable in his life on earth, and he would be miserable for all eternity. Could it be that the reason why God creates a place like hell isn't so that he could torture people like he's some cosmic Hitler. Could it be maybe that he creates a place like hell to protect those who will be further harmed and victimized by the people currently living in it or will eventually live in it? Listen again to what Pastor Joshua Butler says. Quote, God protects Lazarus. Abraham says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. The chasm is a boundary that protects Lazarus from the destructive power of the rich man's sin. No longer will God let the rich man treat Lazarus like a dog. No longer will the bully rule the playground, the husband beat his family, the superpower exploit the developing world. When God establishes his new creation, he will protect it from hell's invasion. The boundary does something more, however, than simply prevent hell from invading the new creation. It also prevents the new creation from being dragged into hell. God will not let the rich man drag Lazarus back down with him. No longer will God let the warlord recruit the child soldier into living hell, the rapist lure the drunk girl into his burning bed, the terrorist inflict his vindictive, vindictive flames on innocent families. When God banishes the power of hell from his new creation, his new world is secure. God protects Lazarus from the rich man's pride. He protects his holy city from the idols the rich man wants to bring inside. He protects the fields of his new creation from the rich man's greed that wants to exploit them. God protects his new world by banishing the tyranny of the old world. God judges sin-destructive by prying creation away from its wildfire-clutching grasp. The fact that God creates a place like hell is not proof that he's not a compassionate God. No, quite the opposite. The fact that there is a hell proves that he is a compassionate God because you know what compassion is? Compassion is protecting those who cannot protect themselves. One more time. Compassion is protecting those who cannot protect themselves. 
which means the opposite of compassion is when you enable victimizers to keep victimizing their victims because you have a misguided, perverted sense of compassion towards the victimizers. That is a misguided sense of compassion that we see so pervasive in our culture today. It's the same misguided compassion that sees people in hell as poor victims rather than seeing for what they are, victimizers. Here's the truth. Our God is a God of compassion. His compassion is not perverted, it's pure. His compassion is not misguided, it's true. And furthermore, his compassion is a merciful compassion. What do I mean by that? Here's the thing. The text, our parable here, it doesn't tell us exactly how Lazarus ended up in the bad situation that he was in. It doesn't say that someone put him in this bad condition. It doesn't even say if he put himself in this condition. But here's what's interesting. Given the fact that this rich man was a spiritual leader, and because spiritual leaders during Jesus' day were notorious of displaying their righteousness for everyone to see, to prop them up and say, oh, you're so righteous, Pharisee. You're so righteous, Sadducee. You're so righteous, priest. How could this rich man get away in neglecting Lazarus like the way he did, right? Especially when it would have been a perfect opportunity to show off how self-righteous he really is. The most likely answer is that even though people didn't know Lazarus, the perception of Lazarus was that maybe he was not a good person. I mean, that's what the text, excuse me, seems to hint at. And when you add to the further fact that no family was willing to come alongside and claim his dead body, which doesn't paint Lazarus in a very good light, the text seems to allude that Lazarus may not have been so innocent after all, that he wasn't 100% just pure victim. He might have had some victimizer in him as well. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the way for Jesus to protect someone like Lazarus from people like the rich man is if Jesus first deals with Lazarus' own sins. And the way scripture tells us that happens is by believing the gospel. You see, even though all of us in here could justifiably say to some degree or another that we have suffered like Lazarus, people have harmed us, people have victimized us, we can also equally say, can we not, that to some degree we are like the rich man. We have victimized others in some degree or another, which also means that if you want to, want to enjoy the protective custody of God's compassion, Your own hell-deserving victimization needs to be dealt with. And Scripture says that only happens when you believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God became man, Jesus Christ, so he could fully pay the full penalty of all your sins, past, present, and future, because Jesus took that upon himself as your Savior substitute when he died on the cross for you. That is the gospel. It's the same gospel that displays His superior compassion. His superior compassion. Let me ask you, what does it cost you to be a compassionate person nowadays? What does it take for you to be a compassionate person to the poor, to the orphans, to the widows? What does it take? Inconvenience? Some of your time? Some of your money? Right? Maybe even your, 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 your rise up the corporate ladder? because you're taking time away to focus all on your career, right? So maybe you can't live in a bigger house, you can't drive a nicer car, right? Yeah, it takes some sacrifice for you to be compassionate nowadays. But let me ask you, what did it cost Jesus to be compassionate towards us? What does it take 
for Jesus to extend his compassion towards you, towards me, towards everyone. You know what it cost him? It required him to be the ultimate victim. It required him to be the ultimate victim of sin, to be the ultimate victim of Satan and his work in this world. It required him to suffer utter humiliation, shame, betrayal, and even death, even condemnation from his father in heaven when he was perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent. God's compassion required him to pay the greatest cost. Let me ask you, when you think about that, when you meditate on that, can you honestly think that your God is not as compassionate as you once thought? Shouldn't it be that you realize that God is even more compassionate than you ever thought? Because if you think about what the gospel teaches us, that's it. That the cost of God to be compassionate was so much more than money and time and a little inconvenience. It was costly. A cost that none of us could ever pay. So Christian, let me ask you. Do you really believe that your God is compassionate? At this time, I'd like to close by asking you to take some time to reflect. And I invite you to just close your eyes for just a moment as we think about what was said today and invite you to pray privately to God before I close this in prayer. And I simply want to ask you this question. Do you believe that the God who you've come to love, whom you've come to believe that you know, do you believe this God is compassionate? Do you truly believe that he is everything that you hoped he is? Or Or are you unsure at this time? And as a result, feeling distant, unsettled, maybe to a point where you have not approached him in quite a while. If you're one of those this morning who feels so unsure and unsettled, take this time and invite the Holy Spirit to really bring some conviction to your heart in light of today's message. That the God who you wish to be true is in fact the God who is true. Let's go to him now.
when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And Father, as we have just heard in this word today and encapsulated in that passage that I just read, Lord, we see now that in spite of what our fears have told us, in spite of what the culture says, you are the God of compassion. Father, you know the journey that we have had in our pursuit of you, and you know that we have gone through detours in that journey, questioning, wondering, even investigating that question that terrorizes us so much. Is my God as compassionate as I always believed he was? Lord, I pray that that is a question that the people here this morning can find settled in their hearts, or that it would begin a journey that would lead to them being more settled so that they could be free and that they could focus on what truly matters so that they could be a blessing in the world. Father, we know the enemy loves to make us feel so doubtful towards you, towards dubious towards you, so dubious towards you, excuse me, and and to really wonder if indeed you are who you claim to be. But Lord, when we find ourselves in that moment, lead us back to the cross, lead us back to the precious gospel where we see the God who loved us so much that he was willing to endure such utter damnation so that you would be justified. You would maintain your holiness. You would maintain your goodness in extending your compassion towards us, that you would not compromise yourself by showing mercy. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be more settled, to be more rooted in your love, And to be more confident that not only are you compassionate as we thought, but you're even more so. God, would you help us, especially in seasons when we find ourselves unsettled, and especially when we interact with our friends, our family members, our loved ones who may not know you, and yet we wonder if they're destined for help. God, help us to pursue them. Help us to love them as you love them. Because as we know these names, so do you. Lord, you know their names better than we could ever know. And so, God, would you help us to have confidence? Would you help us to be secure in your wonderful, merciful compassion? For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But if you are a member of this church, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.